I want to explore with you today that very significant period in the history of the church between the day of Pentecost, a day when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers and the church was born in the first place, and that day some 15 or so years later when the Apostle Paul set off on his great missionary journeys that would take the gospel out to the whole Gentile world. I want to look specifically today at Acts chapter 2 through Acts chapter 12, because I think that what we find in these very important chapters of the New Testament is a glimpse into some of the most fundamental factors that went into the staggering influence of the early church's life. When people look at phenomenal performance in any field these days, there's often this natural tendency to focus on outcomes instead of ingredients. People will look at a company like Google, for example, or they'll study the performance of these great uh, singers that we find on a program like uh, American Idol in the final rounds, or perhaps they'll look at a great athlete like those 1908 Cubs, and they'll focus they'll focus so often on the great talent of the performers, on the great production of those performers. Uh, They'll speak of the amazing capacity of those people. And maybe it's just because we love to be uh, handed the capacity that we focus on the finished product. We dream that maybe one day we'll just be given a great golf game or we'll be granted the capacity to be thought of as terrific mentors to others. Or maybe we think it's forever out of reach, and so we tend to focus much more on the fulfillment of the dream than we do on the ingredients to the success of the dream. In his recent best-selling book, Outliers, popular author Malcolm Gladwell studied phenomenal performance across a whole variety of fields. Maybe you've read the book yourself. Gladwell's passion was to try and figure out why some particular individuals or entities succeeded where others of apparently equal talent did not. What Gladwell discovered were several major factors beyond natural talent that helped to account for the amazing outcomes that came upon certain lives and not on others. And while these are my particular words for his findings rather than Gladwell's way of putting it, here's basically how he sums it up. The first factor that Gladwell found in great performance was real desire, tremendous desire. These people didn't just wish or hope for success. They wanted to achieve their dream at a core level that was very distinctive. They felt a passion for their cause like few other people did. It was a it was not just simply an interest or an ambition, it was an obsession for them. It was a, the driving concern of their life. And this driving desire led them to the second factor, and that was rigorous discipline. The people Gladwell uh, studied turned out to have trained for their performance thousands of hours, uh, often more than people of similar talent who did not see the same results. Though much of this happened behind closed doors or or invisible to the general public, these people worked at the profession, worked at their purposes with profound intensity. Many, many, the 10,000-hour rule, he calls it, 
many, many more hours than others. And the third factor that Gladwell identified was the force of remarkable dynamics. The stars had simply lined up for these people at the right moment, in the right way. It was as if there was a power greater than themselves at work, providentially providing the, the breaks, the open doors, the, the happy concurrences needed for the achievement of their dream. These dream factors played an immensely important role in the achievement and outcomes of these phenomenal performers. You know, I think that when we study the phenomenal performance and influence of the early church in the first 12 chapters of Acts alone, it, it's hard not to notice these same factors at work. For one thing, you, you detect the real desire of the early Christians on almost every single page. I touched a, bit, a little bit on this last week when we looked at how the early believers lived in the days leading up to Pentecost. They, they, these were people that so wanted the life that Jesus had modeled and promised to them that they constantly prayed for the fulfillment of his purposes, for the outpouring of his grace. They courageously obeyed his instructions, even when it was dangerous to do it, even when it meant running back into the teeth of, of persecution. They obeyed his commandments. The recurring message of the book of Acts and indeed of the entire storyline of the Bible is that God entrusts great spiritual power only to people who really desire to see his will done in their life and throughout the world. In fact, if you were to break down and study carefully the great influencers that we read about in the Bible history, you will not be their phenomenal talent that you'll notice. It will not be their great organizational ability. It will not be their necessary good looks. But it was the profound desire, this heart that beat after the heart of God that gets recognized and lifted up. It's their willingness, their desire to see his will done. We see that desire burning in the first disciples so luminously in the opening pages and chapters of Acts. You, you see a group of people that, for one thing, want to see other people get whole and healthy in the fullest sense. They want to see people restored, just like Jesus did when he ministered, now was ministering through them. In Acts chapter 3, for example, just one of the many healing accounts that are recorded in the opening chapters of Acts, we see Peter and John meeting a paralytic. And the paralytic is just asking for a financial handout from them. But, but seeing that particular need, they looked beyond it to the deeper need in the man's life. They were passionate to see him experience more blessing than he was even asking for. And so Peter says in these memorable words, Peter, or, or silver or gold, I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Walk. The disciples want to see the power of God bless and lift people. And, and they secondly want to see God glorified for the work that he's doing. On numerous occasions when people try to give them credit for the, for the work that they're doing, the apostles say, hey, don't look at us. <laughs> it, believe me, it's not by our own power or godliness. It's not our talent that's doing these things. The praise belongs to Jesus. Overarching the early disciples' Their whole life and ministry is this desperate desire to see every person they meet come into the life-renewing 
power of the kingdom of God. A crowd gathers after a healing and Peter grabs the moment to preach the message of Jesus Christ, calling people to repent and to experience God's refreshing. Don't you love that? How much do people need refreshment of the soul? He calls them to this refreshment. A group of community leaders comes together and starts challenging the disciples' teaching, and Peter grabs the moment and urges them to accept the opportunity now to be saved. The first deacon of the church, a man named Stephen, is about to be stoned to death by the religious leaders, and he takes the opportunity at this moment of incredible stress and pressure in his life and fear, I would imagine, he takes the moment to rehearse the whole storyline of Israel and how it had been pointing all along to Jesus, and then he turns to his executors and he says, you know, don't miss the moment. Don't be like those stiff-necked people of the Old Testament that missed the moment offered to them for repentance by the prophets. And then Stephen, as he's dying, recapitulates the grace of Jesus himself by praying for the forgiveness of his killers. The disciple Philip, a little bit later on, models this same outgoing concern. He meets a spiritually seeking Ethiopian on a roadside, and in effect, he rolls down his window, though he's busy on his journey, and he looks over in the next window, and he strikes up a conversation, and he, he leads the man to Christ. And many scholars believe it was that Ethiopian eunuch that took the gospel back to the continent of Africa and accounted for the growth of the huge Ethiopian church there. The evangelistic passion of the early church in these accounts and so many others that I could read to you is simply stupefying. Under the most immense kind of pressure, they keep sharing the faith with this burning passion. Again and again they're told that their message is offensive and it's impolitic, that they'd better shut up or else. But the fire of desire to see other people escape the fire of judgment will not be put out. And so as persecution mounts on the church, their response is just to pray more fervently for the capacity to speak God's word with greater boldness and to do works of help and healing that will authenticate the word, bless people, and bring glory to the name of Jesus. These people so want the life of Jesus to be living that out, out that life, to see other people discover that life, that they're willing to even be held accountable when they're doing a bad job of it, when they're doing a half-hearted job of it. In one particularly memorable story, two partial disciples named Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead by God for having lied about how faithful they were really being. They put on a surface show of being very, very generous, but in reality, they were not being very generous at all. And God strikes them down. I mean, you can imagine this. You can imagine this. The offering plate gets passed. You pull out a a bunch of resources. You throw it in the plate. You're feeling good about yourself. But God knows the totality of your life and how the resources are being used. And you're looking like you're a great, generous person. All of a sudden, the lightning bolt comes down. Boom! Cinder spot where you were sitting. You can imagine the effect on the people around you. It would either dry up worship attendance or greatly increase stewardship. I'm not sure which. (laughs) But when this happens in the life of the early church, 
we're told it produced some considerable fear. Great fear seized the church, the Bible says. But then it goes on to report that nevertheless, nevertheless, and the implication here is that this accountability did some good. Maybe sparked greater faithfulness, greater integrity in the life of the believers. Because the result is that an even larger number of people now start pouring in to the community of disciples. What a profound desire we see in the life of the early believers. I mean, they want to live for Jesus, to be like Jesus, to see others know Jesus. It's a real desire. And this desire leads them, secondly, to rigorous disciplines for protecting, cultivating that desire and the life of God in them. As we study the life of the early church in Acts, we see them committing themselves to these regular practices, practices that Jesus had modeled for them and taught them about. And these disciplines fuel their desire even further to live for God. And we get the most condensed picture, I think, of, of those disciplines, the essential ones, in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And I want to take a moment just to zero in on those together. One of the key disciplines is clearly the discipline of worship. The early church gathers regularly in the temple courts, we're told, and, and in their homes to worship, to pray together, to celebrate the act of communion or breaking of bread, to give thanks gladly and with sincere hearts for God's grace and to praise God for all the things that he's doing in them and, and through them. You, you get the sense that the book, in the book of Acts that worship isn't an event that people go to. Let's go to worship and then leave again. You get the sense in the book of Acts that worship is an entire lifestyle. It's a sort of way of being in the world. These people enjoy and exalt God wherever they go. And especially whenever they're together. The second discipline we observe in those first believers is a purposeful commitment to doing things that will help them grow in Christ-likeness. Two practices seem most essential to them there. First, we read that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They steeped themselves, in other words, in the solid teaching that the most mature believers, the ones closest to Jesus in their midst, could offer them. They wanted to know about the scriptures, the meaning of the scriptures. They were desirous of hearing more about the life of Jesus and his teachings. They wanted to learn about the way of the kingdom of God and how it intersected the day-to-day -day choices they were making. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Secondly, they devoted themselves to the fellowship of other believers, the Bible says. They recognized, perhaps, that it's hard to live the life of faith. I mean, the world is going this way. Jesus' way is this way. I mean, it's hard. You need help. We've got to reinforce each other. We've got to get together frequently and talk about this stuff and pray for and encourage each other. And we see this pattern. We see this pattern in the life of the early church, this discipline. Maybe it's not surprising to you now knowing our church's mission statement, as you do, that in addition to this discipline of worship growth, there was also a commitment to service. 
The third consistent discipline that shows up in Acts again and again is a commitment to serve the needs of others. Everyone in this church regards his resources or her resources as a sacred trust to be used in stewardship for God's purposes and for the meeting of people's needs. And those who don't, (laughs) no, those who don't, (laughs) don't seem to hang around. Don't seem to stay. Because, as incredible as this sounds, we're told in the book of the Acts that because of their willingness to serve one another, I quote, there, was no, there were no needy persons among them. Maybe needy persons came to them. Maybe needy persons started with them. But, by, but after a little while, because of the resources placed around the church, they saw the opportunity to move resources, to meet needs, and the needs got taken care of. As the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 and the story of Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8 make very clear, there's no room for selfishness in the life of the early church. It is contrary to the fundamental heartbeat of the church. To be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is to be aligned in heart and aligned in practice with the God who reveals himself above all as the servant of all. What a desire. What a discipline is evident in the life of the first believers. And the result of all this seems to be the unleashing of some pretty remarkable dynamics in the life of the early church as well. It it, it got propelled. These people got propelled to a success and influence like few other enterprises, like no other enterprise that I know of in history. Acts makes it clear, of course, that it is not just the random lining up of the stars that accounts for the extraordinary outcome, outcomes in the lives of these outliers. Though the book is, is titled The Acts of the Apostles in many translations, frankly, it ought to be called The Acts of God Through the Apostles. At least the apostles understand it works that way. God is the performer on every single page of the book of Acts. And because they're lined up with his heart, because God knows he can entrust these people with power, he he pours it out, he blesses their desire and the discipline of the church with this outpouring. In fact, the Greek word for power is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamic or dynamite. And it is a power like no other movement in history. God gives them power to heal illnesses and to cast out the evil that torments people. While God doesn't spare his disciples from all suffering, we'll hear more about that next week when we talk about Paul, on several occasions God actually provides tremendous intervening power that enables them to escape prison and death and continue their ministry. Perhaps most significantly, God gives such dynamic power to their sharing of the gospel and to their living of the life of faith that simply staggering numbers of people become interested. Staggering numbers of people enter into the community of the early church. I mean, it is like nothing else in history. We get all excited about the growth of of a company like Google. Wait 2,000 years. Let's see if we're still palming the iPod or the iPhone in 2,000 years. And yet the church of Jesus Christ, 2,000 years later, 
people are still carrying around the technology, right? People are still pouring over to understand its mysteries, to use it in daily life. There are branch offices, as I said last week, in every continent, on most villages and towns. The influence of the Church of Jesus Christ is like no other movement in history. It's dunamis, it's power, it's God at work. And part, I think, of that explosive growth comes from the fact that God grants his disciples the power to see as he does. He gives them the power to, to see that the gospel is for everybody. You know, it is for everyone. And through a vision in the night and an encounter with a devout Roman centurion named Cornelius, the apostle Peter is given the ability to see that God's love isn't just for Jews. It's not just for his tribe. It's for anyone who fears him, who reveres him, and who does what is right. And even more amazingly, ultimately the early church comes to understand that it's not just for those who do what is right. It's also for those who have done terribly, terribly wrong. In one of the most significant turning points in history, the Pharisee Saul, who at this point is the most relentless, murderous, merciless pursuer and persecutor of the life of the early church and the early believers. He's met by the glorious presence of Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. Paul, Saul is going to actually imprison more Christians, and he is struck down by the presence of Jesus on the road to Damascus. And to the astonishment of the entire church, Saul comes to faith. And he's baptized. And he receives the Holy Spirit. And he sets off on the even more dynamic mission that we'll return to next week. Many years ago, I came across a wonderful piece of prose that for me was one of the most compelling pictures of church that I'd ever read poet John Oxenham, and I've put it on the cover of your worship folder today, and I'd like, to, I'd like to reflect on it for a moment with you. This is the church of my dreams, Oxenham wrote, the church of the warm heart, of the open mind, of the adventurous spirit. This is the church that cares, that heals hurt lives, that comforts old people, that challenges youth that knows no division of culture or class, no frontiers, geographical or social. This is the church that inquires as well as averse or asserts. This is the church that looks forward as well as backward. The church of the master. The church of the people. High as the ideals of Jesus, low as the humblest human. This is a working church a worshiping church, a winsome church, a church that interprets truth in terms of truth, that inspires courage for this life and hope for the next. A church of spirit, a church for all people. This is the church of the living God. Would you like to be part of a church like that? Would you? Because the book of Acts shows us that a church just like that, 
has existed before. Can it happen again? Does it still happen? The answer is yes. But I need to be very clear. The Bible makes it clear. You don't go to a church like that. You don't hunt around until you find a church like that. You have to be willing to be the church like that. As John Ortberg says, no one becomes a disciple of Jesus simply because they should. No one does it because it's duty. No one becomes a disciple because somebody forces them to. No one becomes a disciple of Jesus simply because they should. You have to want it. You have to want it. To make the shift from church as so many people experience it to church as God dreams it requires desire, a real desire, a desire that shows itself in courageous obedience, in constant prayer, in compassionate concern to see every person you know of enter into the life of the kingdom of God. To be the church of dreams takes rigorous discipline. It takes a commitment to worship and grow and serve at a whole new level than the society often defines those things, and it may take many more hours. It may take 10,000 more hours of investment than anybody else is making to enter into the rhythm of that life. But the promise of God is that everyone whose heart beats after God in these ways will experience a very remarkable set of dynamics at work. You will be given genuine spiritual power, says Jesus. You will be given the power to become more like me. You will be given the power to influence the lives of others. You will be given the power to become my witnesses in a manner that that changes history and not just history, that alters eternity for some of the people of this world. So the the question finally is, Do you want it? Do you want it? Do you want this life? Because if the answer is no, we'll simply have church defined as a building. But if the answer is yes, then the power and the pathway are available to be the church of your dreams. Please pray with me. Almighty God, some of us here long for it. We desperately want it. We don't want to just be the church of our dreams. We want to be the church of your dreams. And so we pray, Lord, keep us on the journey with you. Grow us on the journey with you. Lord, some of us here today, we're just starting to want it. Feed the flame, Lord, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit till it becomes a a raging fire, a productive, radiant, warming fire way lighting fire, not just for us, 
but for those whose lives come across ours. Bring about, Lord God, that great glorious transformation of this planet, of this people, that you purposed when once upon a time you sent the Holy Spirit upon a, a band of common people. And enable us, Lord God, to be the body of Christ, the church of the living God in these days to come. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.